You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, if you will make your way to the letter of Galatians, we're continuing on. We only have a few more weeks in this letter that we've been making our way through for some time now. Today, we're in Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be reading verses 25 through chapter 6, verse 5. So I want everyone to make their way there if you can. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's some on that back table back there. Encourage you to get a copy, have it in front of you. Church, this is God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, He deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let's pray and ask the Lord to grant us understanding, to impact and transform us through the preaching of His Word. Lord, how kind of You to give us Holy Scripture, you are so good and so kind and you've given us so many gifts and one of these precious gifts you've given us is your revelation to us. We do not have to wonder what you are like. We don't have to guess where hope is found and salvation is found. Lord, you have clearly revealed yourself in the words of Scripture. So Lord, now as your Scripture has been read and as it is explained and applied, Lord, would you speak to us, give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, and Lord, may we be transformed by your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin with a question this morning to get us started. How familiar are you with the game show Jeopardy? It's probably not a question you were expecting to here this morning as you came to church. I'm, I'm familiar with the show. I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily a big fan. But I have seen the show many times. Actually, Jeopardy! is one of the longest-running game shows in the history of television. This year, Jeopardy! began its 38th season on air. Now, the concept of this show is actually quite simple. There are three contestants who compete over three rounds by correctly answering trivia questions. So it's that simple. There's three contestants, 
three rounds, trivia questions. People answer, whoever has the most points or the most money in the end wins. Now here's the unique spin on this game show. It reverses the question answer format. If you've ever watched the show, you're aware that's the twist of the game. That's what makes it unique is that it reverses the question answer format. The contestants are given the answer and they are required to then give the question in order to win points. Let me give you an example. If, if a contestant chose the category of presidents for 200, here's, here's a, a question, they, an answer they may get. The father of our country who did not cut down the cherry tree. So they said presidents for 200, and that was the answer they were given. In order for the contestant to win points, they would need to turn that answer into a what is question or a who is question, and in this case, who is George Washington, and they would win their 200 points. That's how the game is played. So they're given the answer, they come up with the question. Now, in the spirit of this great American game show, I thought it would be helpful to summarize what we discovered in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 24, which was three weeks ago, last time we were here. And I thought I could introduce the subject we're actually going to be reflecting on today in our passage by asking one simple Jeopardy-style question. So are you up for it? Okay, well, I'm going to ask you one simple Jeopardy-style question. The category is sanctification. Okay, so get ready. The category is sanctification. The answer is this. It's going to be up on the screen. The pursuit of God in which one avoids the ditch of legalism and the ditch of license. I feel like we should play. Okay, so lock in your answer. Let me say it again. The pursuit of God in which one avoids the ditch of legalism and the ditch of license. What would you say? Here's the answer. What is godliness? What is godliness? The pursuit of God in which one avoids the ditch of legalism and the ditch of license if we were playing a game of Jeopardy this morning, you would win points if you said, what is godliness? So if we can return again to this image, we, we have talked about a number of times throughout this series in Galatians that the Christian life is like a road. It's like being on a road and we are in pursuit of God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So imagine this road, we're pursuing God on this road, and on both sides of the road are two ditches. There are two ditches we must avoid. On one side of this road in pursuit of God is the ditch of legalism. What is that? What is legalism? It's expecting the law of God to do what the law of God was never meant to do to gain us favor with God. So when we get into the ditch of legalism, we can think by obeying God's commands, that gives me greater favor with Him. That was one of the problems going on in Galatia. So there's one ditch we must avoid, but there's another ditch we must avoid. It's the ditch of license. What's that ditch? It's the opposite of legalism. 
It's neglecting the commands of God because we think if we're justified by grace alone, then obedience to God isn't necessary. We can so try to avoid legalism that we swerve over on that road into the ditch of license. Friends, godliness, which is the topic of the text today, is the pursuit of God that avoids both of those ditches. That's what godliness is. It is the pursuit of God that avoids both ditches. Now let me back up and explain the previous text we looked at three weeks ago. If you recall, I had mentioned when we got to chapter 5, verse 16, that a shift takes place in this letter. In chapter 5, verse 16, a shift takes place and it will continue on until chapter 6, verse 10. Up to this point in the letter, the main focus has been on the doctrine of justification. Not exclusively, we've talked about adoption, we've talked about union with Christ, we've talked about a number of other things. But the primary focus has been on the doctrine of justification. But here in chapter 5, beginning in verse 16, Paul begins to introduce another doctrine that is very important to keep these Galatians out of a ditch. And it is the doctrine of sanctification. He begins to draw their attention to the importance of sanctification. Those who've been justified by God on the basis of what Christ has done are called to be sanctified. And what we discovered in chapter 5, verses 16 through 24, is that to be a Christian is to have peace with God because of the person and work of Jesus. But to be a Christian is to be at war with sin that dwells within. That's what we looked at several weeks ago. That to be a Christian is to be at peace with God because of Christ. But to be a Christian is to live with, at war within because there is sin at war within us. That's what we saw in verses 16 and 17. And then we discovered, especially in light of verse 24, that even though the battle with sin continues on in the life of a believer, we've already been given the victory over sin through the death of Christ on the cross. So we are called to fight sin, but we're not fighting, hoping to be victorious. We're fighting as those who are victorious. And in the text before us today, we discover how to be godly. What does that mean to be godly? And we're given some surprising goals that we should aim for as we seek to live a godly life. So here's our outline for this morning. We're going to see verse 25, the grounds for godliness. And then in verse 26 of chapter 5 through chapter 6, verse 5, the goals of godly living. So if you're taking notes this morning, there is our outline. Let's begin by looking again at verse 25, the grounds for godliness. Let me read this verse again. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Now I'm aware that the first thing I must do before proceeding any further at this point in the message is to explain why I believe this passage is about godliness, even though the word godliness never appears in this passage. 
Why would I say that that's what this text is teaching? It's teaching us about godliness, though that word seems to be absent from this text. Well, here are a couple of reasons. Reason number one, the context of this passage. Think about what came before, talking about not living according to the flesh, but living according to the Spirit. It was talking about sanctification and godliness. As we will see, Lord willing, in a few weeks in chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, we're coming back to this idea, man reaps what he sows. We should live a certain way. So the context of this passage is about the way we live godly lives. But here's the main reason, reason number two, that I believe this text is about godliness because of the emphasis of verse 25. The emphasis of verse 25. Look at verse 25 again. Did you notice the, the if-then formula taking place in this passage? We're, we're given a, an if. And if, this is, if the if is answered with a yes, then there's a then. If, if this is true, then you must do that. Do you notice that in this passage? Here, here's the point that's being made in verse 25. If you are a child of promise, if you are a child of God, if you belong to Christ, you've been given the Spirit of God as a gift. If time allowed, we could go back through chapters 3 and 4 and even into 5 and see how this passage, or how the, 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 the letter of Galatians shows us that anyone who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ has been given the Spirit of God as a gift. If you've been given the Spirit of God and He is at work within you, then, listen, here's the then. So He was asking the if. He was saying, if you've had this, if this is true of you, you're a Christian and you have the Spirit, then you must not live on spiritual autopilot. That's the point of verse 25. If you have the Spirit, which if you're a believer, you have the Spirit. There's the if then you must not live on spiritual autopilot. Instead, you must go in the direction that the Spirit of God would have you go. That's what it means to keep in step with the Spirit. The language here, if you see any other times this language is used in the New Testament, it means if someone is going right and you're supposed to follow them, you go right. If they go left, you go left. That's what it means to keep in step with the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, we, we dare not forget. Let's, let's not miss the obvious. We dare not forget who the Holy Spirit is. He is God. Therefore, listen. To keep in step with the Spirit is to do what? What does it mean to keep in step with the Spirit? If the, Spirit, if the Holy Spirit is God, the answer is to follow after God. That's what it means to keep in step with the Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is God, we are called to follow after Him. Remember, the Spirit of God mediates the presence of God to the people of God. So to have the Spirit at work in us allows us to experience the presence of God as the people of God. So to being told, if you have the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. It's basically Paul saying, if you have the presence of God among you, then here's what you're to do. Keep following after God. Friends, this is the essence of godliness. It's the pursuit of God. Verse 25 is so 
important for us to just slow down for a minute, push the pause button and think about what it is saying. This is the essence of godliness. It's the pursuit of God. What is godliness not? It's not seeking to be right with God by following and keeping the laws of God. That's not what godliness is. Failing to remember that the pursuit of God is the essence of godliness, I believe was the grave mistake that these professing Christians in Galatia were making. And that's why Paul needed to adjust their understanding. They were confusing what godliness was. They thought godliness is doing these things that God has commanded us to do, and in doing those, then God is pleased with us. But in essence, godliness is pursuing after God. Friends, listen, this has important implications for us, not just for the church in Galatia then, but for us today. So what should we take away from verse 25? It's this. The grounds for godliness is found in God alone. Think about that. The grounds for godliness is found in God alone. What do I mean by that? How can we be godly? Because God has enabled us through His Spirit to be godly. And why should we be godly? It's not just that God is the means of our godliness. He's the end. And He's the aim. You hear this truth? God makes godly living possible through the help of the Holy Spirit. And God is the aim of godly living. Now listen, when we lose sight of this truth about godliness, and we start making godliness about a whole bunch of other things, we're susceptible to a number of temptations. I just want to point out two spiritually detrimental temptations I think we can all face, and I think if if we went around this morning, we could probably all say one or both of these we can struggle with. Here's one of them. We can live on spiritual autopilot. We neglect to really stop and consider what verse 25 is telling us. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. We can think, I've got the Spirit. He's way at work. And we can have this view that spiritual growth doesn't require effort on our part. Well, the Spirit produces fruit, so all I'm doing is just sitting back and watching the Spirit work. Listen, that is not how the Bible speaks of sanctification. Sanctification, yes, it can only take place because of the Spirit, but it requires effort. There must be repentance. There must be confession of sin. There must be prayer to God. God, help me in this area. There must be accountability. Can I ask you a question? Are any of those things regular practices in your life? If they're not, you may be living on spiritual autopilot. I've got the Spirit. I'll just get godlier every day. But I'm not going to put any effort forward. I'm not going to repent of my sins. I'm not going to confess my sins. I'm not going to pray, Lord, help me to overcome the sin. I'm not going to have accountability. 
one of the temptations we face, if we don't really slow down and consider the words of verse 25, we live on spiritual autopilot. Here's the second one. We can believe that the pursuit of godliness is the same as pursuing God. What do I mean by that? I think this is a very subtle temptation, but I think it's a real temptation we can all face. We can act as if godliness is basically a set of norms, a list God has given us, and He says, this is what you're to do. These lists of do's and don'ts are opposite of worldliness, so you either need to start doing these things or stop doing these things, and if you do them, then you'll be more Christ-like. And godliness becomes about pursuing godliness, not about pursuing God. And the pursuit of godliness becomes about, okay, so I'm supposed to do these things, I'm not supposed to be, do these things, so that makes me godly. I'm keeping the list, I'm keeping the rules, I'm doing all of these commands. It can seem really subtle and be deceiving. We can think, oh no, I'm godly. Look, look, look at all the things I'm doing. We even use a phrase, we tell one another, I need to act more godly. But in reality, Godliness is just pursuing God. Now, does that mean we have to stop doing things opposite of worldliness? Sure. Does that mean we have to stop doing things we used to do? Yes, because love for God and love for the world are opposed. You can't love God and love all the things of the world. So sure, we have to change the way we live. But if we go after godliness, like, okay, what's, what's the list? Give me the do's, give me the don'ts. Then we're going to be in danger of missing. What godliness is about, godliness is about pursuing God and desiring to please Him with your life by bringing Him glory in all you do. That's what godliness is. If I say, I, I want to pursue God and I want to please Him in everything that I do and I want to bring Him glory, listen, you, you will be aiming in the right direction. You will be aiming in the right direction. Now, for the sake of time, we must move on to the goals of godliness. But before we do, let me just warn you, we're going to discover some surprises along the way. What are some of the goals of godly living? Well, Paul is now going to fill that out beginning in verse 26 and into chapter 6, verse 5. Look again now at verse 26. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, Envying one another. Now at first glance, verses 25 and 26 don't appear to go together. But I assure you, they're meant to. It can almost seem like Paul's talking about keeping step with the Spirit, and then he turns around and says, and don't be conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. You say, okay, are those two separate thoughts? Well, how do these two connect? Well, as we've seen earlier in chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, and as we saw three weeks ago in, in verses 16 through 24, one of the main aims of godliness, listen, this is so important for us to see, one of the main aims of godliness is relational growth, not just spiritual growth. Godliness gets lived out horizontally just as much as it gets lived out vertically. Do we believe that? When you think about godliness, are you just thinking about this? And yet you're neglecting, if, if, you're, if you're godly, you're not just concerned about am I walking rightly before the Lord. 
But godliness gets lived out. Am I walking rightly with others? There's no disconnect between verse 25 and 26. Look again at what Paul says in verse 26. Because here we discover one of the main goals of godliness. Let us not become conceited. One of the main goals of godliness, whether you have been saved for a day, for 10 years, for 40 years, one of the main goals of godliness is humility. Humility in the form of not being so self-focused. That's what verse 26 is saying. You want to grow in godliness? You have to be aware you're conceited. And your conceit comes out in two ways. You provoke and you envy. See, the desires of the flesh that are at war with the Spirit that we heard about in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 5, here's what we need to know about those desires. The desires of the flesh are selfish. That's what the desires of the flesh, at their core, if you could take them out, put them on a piece of your dish, and, and slice them in half and put them under a microscope and examine them, the desires of the flesh that we're called to war against by the help of the Holy Spirit, they're selfish desires. They are selfish desires. Therefore, in order to fight sin and to grow in godliness, we must put to death the sin of self. You want to grow in godliness? Then put to death the sin of selfishness. Is that one of your goals? Is that one of the main aims of godliness in your life? See, according to Galatians 5.26, one of the ways we struggle with this selfishness is through sinful comparison and rivalry. Listen, here, pride's going to do a number of things that are going to be mentioned in this passage. Here's one of the things pride does in all of us. Pride makes us feel either superior before others or inferior before others. It gets in the way of godliness. Because I walk in a room and here's what my pride does. Oh, I don't do that. As I look at other people. And I'm superior or I look at them and say, oh, I don't do that. And I feel inferior. And both of those are wrong. And they're a hindrance to godliness. Because godliness puts self to death. So here's the question. Do you regularly compare yourself to other professing Christians when it comes to your level of godliness versus theirs? Do you regularly do that? Maybe you don't think about it, but you find yourself regularly doing that in your home group, among the, the circle of ladies that are getting together, among the group of guys that are getting together on Sunday mornings. Do you find yourself regularly comparing your godliness to those around you and either feeling superior, well, I'm not as bad as they are, or inferior? See, I truly believe from personal experience and I believe from Scripture 
that one of the greatest hindrances to godliness in the life of a Christian that usually goes undetected and gets minimized is self-righteousness. It's one of the hazards of seeking to be godly because the more you seek to be godly, what is your natural inclination? You start looking at people and say, well, I, well they're not very godly. Or, oh man, they're so godly. I've got so long to go. If you truly want to be godly, we have to start being aware of the self-centeredness that's at work in our heart. And that's why we need to heed the words of verses 1 through 5 of chapter 6 and take them to heart. Paul then transitions. He's still talking about the same topic, but now he's getting in to the nitty-gritty here. He says, Brothers and sisters, if anyone is called in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Now notice this, in this verse, we encounter another surprising goal for godly living. Not only are we to not be so self-focused and seek after humility, here's another thing we're to do. We must care about the godliness of others as much as we're concerned about our own godliness. Is that one of your goals for godliness? When you think, I think I'm, I'm pursuing God. Would you say that because you think, well, man, I'm, there's been some sins I've been battling with that I have really seen God give me victory over. But you have no eyes for anyone else. You're not concerned with their godliness. Of course, you don't want them to just wreck their life. But that's not your business. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is our business. If we care about godliness, we care about it not just in ourselves, but in others. And that's why Paul says, if anyone is caught in any transgression. Now, we must read this carefully because we can read this one of two ways. And I think the first way is the wrong way. And the second way is the heart of what Paul's saying. We can talk about being caught in a transgression. Like you walk in and you find somebody doing something and they freeze and they look at you like your kids. And when you told them not to stop jumping on the bed and you walk in and they're... And there's that look on their face like, you caught me. Their hand is in the cookie jar. That's not what Paul's saying. Hey, you caught somebody in their sin. You go, aha, gotcha. No, the kind of caught he's talking about is someone has been caught in a trap. Caught in a trap. How different do we respond to someone who didn't just stick their hand in the cookie jar? Not to take away from the responsibility I know this metaphor can fall apart in the way of not to say this person hasn't done anything, they're not morally responsible, but, but do you notice the language Paul uses? They're caught in a trap. Therefore, if you have the Spirit, you should treat them gently. Let me give you another illustration. How differently would you treat someone whose hand was in the cookie jar versus you are a soldier, you're walking out in the field and one, the man right in front of you steps down and you hear, You wouldn't say, well, that was haphazard. You need to be more careful. He now is stepping on a mine. He moves his foot and he's gone. What would be your response? You wouldn't be, well, I'm glad that wasn't me. What are we going to do? 
which is exactly what Paul says we are to do next. See, the Galatians appear, as we've made our way through this letter, they've appeared to pride themselves in their zeal for the law. They, they have said, we love the law. We want to keep all of the law. That's why they're so worried about the circumcision aspect. They said, hey, we don't want to just keep some of the law. We want to keep all the law because we're people who love the law. But here's their big problem. If they love the law so much, why not help lawbreakers who are struggling? That's what Paul's saying to them. Oh, you love, you love the law? What's the opposite of law keeping? It's transgressions. And those who are in transgression, you love the law, then come to the aid of those that are struggling. And do it with a spirit of gentleness. And what is your aim? It's to restore them. It's to restore them. Restoration should be the goal for every Christian who must confront a fellow Christian caught in sin, but listen, be aware that temptation awaits. Look at the rest of six one. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Be aware that if you go help a struggling sinner, sinner, it comes with risk. You will find yourself tempted. In many ways, tempted with self-righteousness, tempted with pride, tempted with impatience. And friends, be careful that the very thing you're helping them with, you don't think is a struggle beyond you. You can be helping a brother with pornography and find yourself struggling with it too. You can be helping a sister who is struggling in her Marriage, and you find yourself doing some of the exact same things in your marriage. So we must tread carefully, not thinking, oh, here I come to the rescue. (laughs) I'm going to come. Hey, don't worry. I'm here to rescue you. I'm here to restore you. No, we come in with a spirit of gentleness and humility. Brother, I'm here to help. And how do we help? Verse 2. Bear one another's And so fulfill the law of Christ. What do you do? What do you do when you find that brother or sister caught in sin? Not only are you to have a gentle heart towards them. Here's what you're to do. You're to say your struggle is my struggle. Your problem is my problem. That's what it means to bear their burden. It's not just to say to see your friend standing there with his foot on the mine. And just say, oh man, my heart breaks for you. It's to come to his aid and say, I'm not leaving until this problem is solved. Your problem is my problem. Your struggle is my struggle. And by doing that, we're told we fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ is a term Paul uses, which really is, I believe, a shorthand for the way Christians live under the new covenant now that we're no longer under the old covenant law in the same way. So Paul uses this phrase a number of times in his letter, the law of Christ. And if we were to summarize the law of Christ, what is the law of Christ? Here's the law of Christ. It demonstrates the love of Christ to others. How do we live out the law of Christ? We emulate Christ. 
And Jesus rescued us when we were caught in the grip of sin by entering into our sinful world, by taking on our flesh, and by taking upon Himself the consequences of our sin. So why should we go and rescue those, come to the aid of those who are struggling? Because we have a Savior who did that for us. And when we model that, we are fulfilling the law of Christ. The law that governs us isn't, okay, what's the rules? What's the list? We say, what would Christ do? What has Christ done? That's my anchor. I'm going to do what He did. And He didn't stand back and just say, well, you, you, you made the bed light. He said, I'll take the cross that you deserve to walk and to be hung upon. And I'll take it for you. That's what it means to fulfill the law of Christ. And friends, if we fail to act on Galatians 6 verses 1 and 2, we once again will be pray, we will fall prey to several Temptations. Here's one of those temptations. We'll be tempted to think that our pursuit of godliness is primarily about how well I'm doing and how well I'm putting sin to death. All the while, I may be failing to care for those who need my help. See, all of a sudden, Paul says, you want to talk about godliness? Here's what you need to do. You need to just think about yourself. You need to say, are those in your community, are those around you who are struggling, are you as concerned with their sin as you are with your own? Friends, the real mark of godliness in a man or a woman's life is not simply concern for their own spiritual well-being, but a great concern for the spiritual health and well-being of the community you're a part of. Here's a question. Does that describe you? Would that be one of your goals of godliness? I want to be godly. I've got to be as concerned about the spiritual health of others as I'm concerned about my own spiritual health. Here's the second temptation. It's the flip side of the first. If you're caught in sin, you may despise Instead of welcome help from others. Others come to your aid. You're standing with your foot on the mine. And they say, we're here to help. And you say, what? Are you holier than thou? I don't need your help. That's really self-righteous of you to think you, you need to help me. In my sin. You've got your own sin. There's a temptation not to help. And there's a temptation to say, I don't need anyone's help. Keep your eyes on your own sin. Yet God, in His kindness, has sent others to our rescue and to our aid. But here's a question. If that's you and you're struggling, your foot is on the mine, are you welcoming the help of other people around you? Are you making it really hard for them to say anything to you? How dare you judge me? How dare you speak to me? How dare you be worried about my sin? 
Listen, godliness is a community affair, not an individual pursuit. However, listen, this is where there's so much balance that has to take place. There's so many difficulties we have to be aware of. So godliness is a community affair. However, seeking to live a godly life requires us to pay careful attention to our own selves. Now you think, well, that's obvious. But notice once again what Paul says. Look at verse 3 again. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Now in order to understand what Paul just said in verses 3 through 5, well, actually let me keep reading through verses 4 and 5. But let each one test his own work and from this and And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbors, for each will have to bear his own load. Now, in order to grasp what Paul is saying here in these three verses, we must go back to verse 26 when he says, don't be conceited, envying and provoking one another. You see, one of the things that pride does is not only does it make us compare ourselves and we feel superior or we feel inferior. Here's another thing pride does. Public service announcement, this is for free. You ready with what pride does? It deceives us into thinking we're far better off than we really are. You see, the danger, the hazard of caring for others is that it's going to come natural for you to spend all your time saying, Oh, I'm, I'm godly because I'm helping others. Oh, look at them. They need my help. Oh, man, they're struggling in sin. And all the while, you've forgotten to look in the mirror. And say, "Woo, I've got my own issues. I don't know why I'm out here helping other people. I need some help. And that's what pride does. It gives us a false sense of who we really are. So how do we combat this problem? Well, I love the words of the late Bishop of Liverpool, J.C. Ryle, he said this, Would we know the root and spring of humility? One word describes it. You want to know the root of humility? The root of humility is right knowledge. The man who really knows himself and his own heart, who knows God and His infinite majesty and holiness, who knows Christ and the price in which He was redeemed, that man will not be a proud man. You know yourself? You know the holiness of God? And you know the price in which your redemption costs? How in the world can you or I be proud? He he goes on to say, He will say of Himself like Job, I am vile. He will cry like the Apostle Paul, I am the chief of sinners. He will not think anything good from him. In lowliness of mind, he will esteem everyone else to be better off than himself. Ignorance. Nothing but sheer ignorance of self, of God, and of Christ is the real secret of pride. But Here's his counsel. From that miserable self-ignorance, may we daily pray to be delivered. When's the last time you prayed that way? And I prayed that way. Lord, my greatest problem today is that I need to be delivered from the ignorance that I'm far better than I am. 
I'm not. Deliver me. I dare you to pray that. And ask the Lord, Lord, humble me. Give me eyes to see the way you see me. You see me as your beloved child. But you also see me in all my sin and all my difficulty. And he ends with this. He is the wise man, the wise woman who knows himself. And he who knows himself will find nothing within within him to make him free. (laughs) We really know ourselves. We won't be impressed. The right knowledge of ourselves will deliver us from this pride that we can struggle with. So he goes on to say in verse 4, we're wrapping up here. He says in verse 4, but let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. This can seem confusing at at first, but the point is actually quite simple. Paul's saying if we really want to have confidence in our growth in godliness, it should not be because we've compared ourselves to others. If you want to have confidence, I'm growing in godliness, it's not because you've looked at everybody else and said, I'm not doing as bad as they are. You want to have confidence in your godliness, it's because you've done the hard work of dealing with your sin and submitting to the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the point Jesus is making in Matthew chapter 7, maybe one of the most misquoted, misunderstood passages where Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged. And we think it means don't ever judge anybody. No, Jesus is saying judge people. He's saying there's a right way and a wrong way to judge people. He's saying if you go to your brother and you say, listen, I need to get the speck out of your eye when you've got a log in yours, you're in the wrong and God is going to treat you the same way you've treated others. So he's not saying don't judge people. That's what our culture thinks that passage means. He's saying, listen, there is a time to go help your brother caught in sin. But don't you go to him and try to get the speck out of his eye when you got a big log hanging out of yours. Deal with your own sin. That's what Paul's saying here. you got enough of your own problems to worry about. And then in verse 5, he kicks it up a notch. He calls for us to watch our life and godliness with eternity in view. For each will have to bear his own load. That verse is in the future tense. Paul is saying, you you really want to be concerned about something here that you need to be concerned about? One day, you are going to give an account before the holy God of the universe for every word that came out of your mouth, every action and every attitude. Let that sober you. What about your neighbor? Paul says something similar in Romans 14. If you're wondering, I I can't get my mind around this. I think Romans 14 helps here. He says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. And then he ends with verse 12. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. That ought to anchor and uproot any form of self-righteousness and pride when we realize 
that truth. So here's my closing admonition, brothers and sisters, to grow in godliness. Listen, it's this simple. To grow in godliness, let us pursue the grace of God. Or let us pursue the God of grace who has redeemed us from the power of sin. Let us pursue the God of grace who's redeemed us from the penalty of sin by Jesus' death on the cross. And let us place our confidence in the Spirit of God who can produce godly fruit in our lives. And may we all do it to bring Him honor and glory. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for ministering to us through Your Word. I know we all needed to hear this message. And it fell on hearts and ears differently according to the struggles and the situations we are facing. Lord, I pray that as your word has gone out like seed being sown, Lord, it would not return void. That the enemy would not rob people from the seed that's gone out. No one would listen this morning and say, oh, that's not for me. Lord, I pray every heart has been impacted and affected by your word today. And I pray that the fruit of this message would be that everyone here would turn to you and look to you and be forgiven and changed and, and, and would bear great fruit. If there's anyone here this morning who has not turned to you to be changed, to be forgiven, Lord, I pray that today would be the day. And I pray for us all who have experienced the forgiveness of God and we have the Spirit of God in us. Lord, help us keep in step with the Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.